attending with me out of respect for the word and turn to 1 Corinthians 12. Now, 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm just going to reiterate here what I'm going to reiterate in a few moments, and that is that uh, put on your seatbelts and get ready to stay a while because we're going to work our way very carefully through these very, very important chapters on extraordinary spiritual gifts, and by God's grace, uh, we will have understanding about how uh, the Lord has seen fit to administer these gifts for the edification of His body. Today we take uh, just uh, three verses. 1 Corinthians 12, 1-3, here is the infallible, inspired, and errant Word of God. And now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. For you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I lay down to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. May God add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. Let's ask for his help to understand. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation that we in the whole world may perceive the glory of His marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you and with the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, now uh, we come to uh, what you've all been waiting for. Uh... It's uh, my basic theory, and I don't think that it's all that profound or uh, won't sound as something that is new or strange or unusual to your ears, that if you just sort of randomly interviewed uh, ten evangelical Christians and asked them what they think of when they think of 1 Corinthians, I will bet you that nine out of ten of them will say the first thing they think of when they think of the book of 1 Corinthians is chapters 12 through 14 and the issue of dealing with uh, tongues and prophecy. Now, I'll grant you that that has much to do with the time in which we live. Uh, Perhaps 200 years ago, it wouldn't have been that way. Uh, But it is now primarily because of the rapid worldwide movement which is known as the charismatic movement. One reason why this morning we're going to take so much time to deal with uh, chapter 12 and chapter 14 uh, is precisely because there's nowhere else, first of all, in the Word of God to turn to to really uh, gain a handle on these extraordinary spiritual gifts like 1 Corinthians 12. And 14. You can certainly find other places in the New Testament where uh, the matter comes up and is dealt with in sort of a peripheral manner, but really there's nowhere else to turn if you really want to understand this phenomenon. And we need to understand this phenomena, as I've already alluded to, because of the uh, rapid growth of the charismatic movement, which as of 2009 boasted 618 million members worldwide and 11,000 denominations. And the movement itself cuts across all 
denominational lines. You will find charismatics in Lutheran denominations, Methodist denominations, Roman Catholic denominations, and even Anglicans and Orthodox. Where you probably won't find the charismatic movement is within confessional, conservative, Reformed and Presbyterian churches. Uh, By God's providence, uh, these churches have generally not... uh, found the argument convincing that God has uh, renewed His uh, extraordinary gifts in our age and our generation. And so if you have been very long in a Reformed and Presbyterian church, and if you grew up in it like I do, or I did, uh, people talk to you about 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 and the issue of tongues and prophecy and other forms of extraordinary gifts. And you know in advance... Such things don't occur. And so when your friends bring it up with you in discussion, uh, you have an answer ready to hand. That's all in the past. And they say, but it's all in the Bible. How do you know? And usually what we do at that point is change the topic. Because I know this, uh, having grown up in Reformed circles all my life, that we don't talk about 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 very much. In fact, if you've ever heard a sermon on these passages, it would feel very much like a, a plane ride across the United States, uh, soaring above the text at thousands and thousands of feet, safely above the details, with constant repetition and reaffirmation of the fact that we don't believe these things exist anymore. But almost very little uh, detailed examination and instruction of these passages so that A, we understand what was going on, and B, we understand why we don't believe in these things anymore. Now, to help you understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians 12, to help us as a church understand it, to help us have answers, to help us engage in discussion... Our friends and neighbors who are in charismatic church situations who believe in these things, we need to be equipped and armed with understanding. And so I don't apologize about the fact up front that we're going to spend uh, a fair amount of time working our way through these chapters so that we can understand it. And I hope it's an encouraging time. I hope it's an exciting time for us as a church. And I hope it's a time that we commit ourselves to understanding uh, these very uh, important verses so that we have answers to the vast, vast Christian community around us that uh, claims that they actually do speak in tongues and prophesy and exercise extraordinary gifts. And we need to be ready as God's people to have an answer. So this morning I make the modest proposal to take on three verses. Very important verses, which I would argue are really the foundational verses because they set the tone and they signal where Paul is taking the discussion. Having said that, let's dive into our text here and notice, first of all, that Paul's point is in verse 1 to deal with the question, what is true spirituality. That's what's going on in verse 1. What is true spirituality? I'll get to that in a second. Let's stop here and do what we normally do as we've been preaching through the Corinthians and ask, where are we? Well, 
those first uh, two words there in verse 12 are important. Now concerning. Uh, In the original, they're the same words that have been showing up since chapter 7. When we got to chapter 7, we paused and we noted that uh, Paul has now structured his comments around a series of questions which have uh, have arisen in the Corinthian church. And we dealt with marriage, and we dealt with sex, and we dealt with uh, food offered to idols, and we dealt with head coverings, and we dealt with the Lord's Supper. And, and now we come to another issue that's very important in the church of Corinth. Now concerning spirituality and spiritual gifts. Primarily what we're going to find here as we work through chapter 12 is that Paul sort of just works through the nuts and bolts of extraordinary spiritual gifts, describing them, um, identifying perhaps many if not most of them. And in chapter 14 what he's going to do is talk about how they were to be used in public worship at that time for God's purpose. So that's sort of a a bird's eye view, sort of maybe a panoramic view of where we have been and where we are going. Paul is going to address the role of extraordinary spiritual gifts in the worship of God's people. Now, we have to stop right there, though, and realize that Paul here in verses 1 through 3 is not dealing uh, precisely and specifically with the range of spiritual gifts. He is, but his primary issue here is this. How can you tell whether someone is truly spiritual? And and I know that's what he's doing because if if you have a translation like I do, the New American Standard Version, you're going to notice there that the word gifts is italicized, which means it's not in the original. I didn't check the NIV or other translations, so look at it for yourself. But um, what Paul is saying is now concerning literally spirituals. That's what it says. It's in the plural. Concerning spirituals. And that signals to us that what the apostle is doing, and we're going to see this from verse 3 as well, and 2, what he's dealing with is the question, how can I tell whether somebody is really a spiritual person? And if they're that kind of a person... How do I know whether the messages that are coming to them through tongues and prophecy are consistent with God's broader revelation? And so what the Apostle is going to do here is he's going to lay down a doctrinal test. He's going to say that truly spiritual people, that true spirituality is built on the bedrock of sound doctrine. See, we can never seem to get away from that. We can never get away from doctrine when we're dealing with church issues. So Paul is dealing with this first, and then he's going to go on to talk about, after that, uh, tongues and prophecy and extraordinary gifts. What I want us to do here, as we think about these issues, though, is ask the question, why does it come up? Why are spiritual gifts, extraordinary spiritual gifts, particularly as they relate to the issue of true spirituality, why is it a question at all? After all, it's... uh, It's sort of new, biblically speaking. And the answer is, there's an Old Testament prophecy. uh, One that you're probably aware of in Joel chapter 2, where God said to the prophet Joel, it will come about after this, and this is beginning in verse 28 of Joel 2, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, 
even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, what we have here is a prophecy of the messianic era. And what God is saying to the prophet Joel is that when the messianic era arrives, something unusual is going to happen. It will be marked by some sort of spiritual, external phenomena. And it's this, that people who wouldn't ordinarily prophesy now will be prophesying and they will be experiencing extraordinary uh, outpourings of the Holy Spirit upon their life. That's going to happen in the Messianic era. That's what he means in those days. Now, uh, you're well aware of this, that in Acts chapter 2, that prophecy is fulfilled. You remember that the disciples have been promised by Jesus Christ that, that uh, they're going to wait in Jerusalem and wait until the Spirit of God is poured out. And so, that's exactly what we find them doing. On on Pentecost, they are in Jerusalem. They are waiting for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, we have this uh, this climactic fulfillment, this mighty rushing sound of wind, and and there's the external phenomena of, of the tongues of fire resting on the heads of the disciples. And then, this external confirmation, this prophesying, which was the speaking in tongues. That's where this all comes from. This is all part of God's plan. This isn't something that's unforeseen. This isn't something that is common to the practice of religion. This is something that God had ordained to happen in the Messianic era. And what we find there in Acts chapter 2 is that Joel's prophecy was spot on. All of a sudden, these very different kinds of people all of a sudden begin to receive uh, this moving, this operation by the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't just for five minutes. If you look at the book of Acts, what you are struck by, as the church moves out and fans out from Jerusalem, so do these spiritual gifts. Obviously you have Acts chapter 2. Then you have the healings of Acts chapter 3. You have the outpouring of extraordinary gifts in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. You have the Spirit falling upon uh, the disciples who were at Cornelius' house in Caesarea, and they all began to speak in tongues. And then you have Acts chapter 19, Paul and Ephesus preaching the Word, and, and all of a sudden the Spirit falls, and they start speaking in tongues. You see, as the Word goes forth from Jerusalem, as the church fans out from Jerusalem, what you find is this fulfillment of Joel 2 pouring out across the church. Such that, if you look through the New Testament letters, you will find uh, regular mention of the gifts. Thessalonians. One of the earliest letters in the New Testament. Uh, written very, very early on. Paul uh, commands the Thessalonians not to despise prophecies. What you must assume there is that there's prophecies going on there. He said, don't quench the spirit. And don't despise prophecies. To the uh, Romans, he said, uh, he couldn't wait to come there and impart to them some spiritual gift. And I don't think that he's talking about joy and peace and love and all the things that are common to the Holy Spirit, because that's what you get automatically. It's talking about a spiritual gift, extraordinary spiritual gift. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, which was written to some sort of a congregation in Rome as well, tells us, that uh, they had had the gospel confirmed to them by the disciples and the apostles of the Lord by wonders and miracles 
and gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see, the point is that they had seen these confirmations of the messianic gospel message. It was signs, it was wonders, it was healings, it was all kinds of extraordinary things, and it was all about confirming the message. Now, we're going to get into explaining what these things are all about later on as we work through 1 Corinthians 12. My only point here is to say this. Why are we dealing with spirituality and spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12? Well, the answer is because it's the messianic era. The answer is because Joel 2 was fulfilled. The answer is because it's the apostolic era. The answer is because God had determined to confirm his word in this way. And so we have to deal with it because the Corinthians seem to be very rich in this. So it's an issue because God is fulfilling his word. Secondly, uh, we need to realize this. That because of this pouring out, and because it was so indiscriminate as it were, that it begins to cause difficulties in the churches. Think about it. We find out that from Joel 2, that the Spirit will be poured out upon male and female, young and old, and on servants. Now if you stop and think about those three categories, you have the three categories that exhaustively describe distinctions in the ancient world. Gender, age, and social status. And what we find is that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit cuts across all of those artificial distinctions. And what we find is we all of a sudden now have a leveling out. And this is the really strange thing for people who are experiencing this and witnessing it and a part of it is that you as a father training your children up in the knowledge of the Lord, catechizing them at home, could actually go to church and have their, your 13-year-old daughter all of a sudden experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and now she's speaking in tongues and revealing truth. That's different. That's not how things ordinarily work. You could be a slave owner responsible for uh, the maintenance and, and the lives of slaves who become believers. And you could literally be used to telling them what to do. And you could literally be in this relationship where they viewed you as the authority, where they hung in all of your words, and all of a sudden you show up to church a Sunday morning, and one of the slaves you own stands up and prophesies, and now you are the one who's listening to their authoritative words. What I'm trying to do is, is enlarge our thinking here. To understand... Uh, how disturbing this must have been to people who are not used to having uh, these social uh, barriers tweaked like this. They weren't used to it at all. The ancient world was very patriarchal. Far beyond what we could ever possibly imagine. It's unthinkable that these things would happen. They would never have considered slaves to even be people almost. So to be in the position to have to hear them speak inspired and fallible truths, to them was just utterly inconceivable. Now, you can imagine what happened with this indiscriminate outpouring. Is that now, you have people who were at one time literally nothing in terms of society's understanding and they are by God's grace receiving these outpourings for a temporary amount of time for the blessing of the church and and guess what happens knowing how human nature works a few people start getting 
self-inflated. Start getting some big egos. Started thinking of themselves as super spiritual. And guess what? Guess what? If you didn't get one of those gifts, what would people think of you now? Well, maybe you're inferior spiritual. Maybe you're not even a Christian. Maybe you're not close to God. After all, you don't seem to have a pipeline to Him, to hear from Him. That's the kind of unrest that's set in motion in the church here. That's precisely why Paul has to deal with the issue. And so what you're going to see here is that Paul has to correct it among the Corinthians. You see that here in verse 1. He says, concerning spirituality, I don't want you to be unaware. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And you see, very important as we understand this in view of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul said of the Corinthians that they had been enriched in all speech and knowledge. Uh, enriched is, is to be blessed to the point of overflowing. And, and when he says speech and knowledge, he's, say, he's referring to extraordinary spiritual gifts. And, and he's saying of them that they have had, this church has been richly blessed with an, with, um, an unusual outpouring of the extraordinary spiritual gifts. And the problem is, They've become a little bit haughty, a little bit arrogant, and a little bit proud. And particularly, they have a problem about thinking that uh, certain spiritual gifts are better than others. Primarily, speaking in tongues. If you look at it, chapter 12, and then on the chapter 14, Paul constantly refers to tongues. Constantly. 1 Corinthians 14, he says, uh, they're zealous for spiritual gifts. And I I don't think that that's a a commendation. I think he's trying to say, it's it's ironic. He's saying, you people are a little bit too uh, impressed with these. Uh, uh, 14.20 says that Paul doesn't want them to be children in their thinking. In other words, they've become immature. They've somehow relied upon these... uh, Extraordinary signs and wonders as if they are the real issue, the real thing, rather than the Word of God. Uh, Verse 37, that same chapter, he says that anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the commandment of God. So in other words, what he's he's trying to do here is he's showing us that the Corinthians have uh, just an an uh, over-inflated sense of self. And they, they really do believe that Particularly, their use of tongues really indicates that they are the ones who are truly spiritual. That's the only thing we can make of this uh, constant repetition of the gift of tongues and the fact that Paul spent so much time straightening it out is that the Corinthians have privileged this gift above all of it, others and said, this is really what it is to be spirit-filled. This is really what it is. To be spiritual. And Paul's going to correct that. 
He's going to start correcting that right here in our passage. But what I want us to just stop and think about for a moment is, as you hear that kind of language, and you hear what Paul has to address, as you hear what Paul has to correct in 1 Corinthians 12, right off the bat here in these first few verses, does it ring any bells about people who claim to believe in the charismatic gifts today? Are there any set of gifts that are considered to have a higher priority? To be more uh, blessed of God. To indicate that one is more in tune or more in touch with God. Or more of a recipient of spiritual outpourings. Well, the answer is yes. The Assembly of God, Statement of Fundamental Truth, Section 8 says, The baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed... By the initial physical sign of speaking in tongues. The United Pentecostal Church statement of fundamental truth says the outward evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit is speaking with tongues. That's just a sampling, and these denominations. Uh, number in the millions in the United States and the millions and millions internationally and, and I want you to just hear what they have privileged. They have just said the real sign of somebody having the Holy Spirit is what? They speak in tongues. That's precisely the issue that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, you've got it all wrong. That's not the sign. It's not the sign at all. Yet millions and millions and millions of Christians are taught that if they're not speaking in tongues, they're second class Christians at best. It's a gross misunderstanding that should be easily corrected by simply looking at what God's Word says. And what Paul is driving away at here is that true spirituality, evidence of the Holy Spirit, is not based upon your speaking. In tongues. Now, to correct that, we come into the second point. Basically, what Paul has done in verse 1 is to say, I've got to correct you because you have a distorted understanding of spirituality. And he said, Now I sing in verse 2, um, as he brings up their pagan past, you shouldn't be so arrogant, you shouldn't be so self assured. You shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't believe that you're right. Because he says, after all, and this leads us to our second point, you were pagans. You were pagans in the past. What did that mean? What did that mean to be a pagan, as Paul says it here? Well, Paul is simply borrowing the language of the Old Testament and even at the time of the apostles, was pretty much how the covenant people spoke and divided up the world. There were, there were the covenant people of God, and there's everybody else. There's the covenant people of God, and everybody else was steeped in pagan idolatry. That's it. Two ways of looking at the world. Jews and everybody else. Covenant people and everybody else. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter.
chapter 2, verse 12, and he says to the Ephesians, who were once in that category, he says, you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. So if you want to know what Paul means when he says they were pagans, there's your answer. This is what it is to be a pagan, according to the Apostle Paul. It's to be separate from Christ, excluded from the covenant of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. To be a pagan is to be apart from Christ, strangers to the covenant, hopeless and without God. And what Paul would say is you can burn all the candles and incense you like, you can consult all the psychics and horoscopes and shamans and everything else and participate in all of the religious ceremonies you would like, but at the end of the day, this is your status. You're apart from Christ. You're not spiritual. You're hopeless. You're godless. Paul says, you Corinthians, what? We're pagans. And this is what characterizes people who were pagans, and who are to this day. They are led astray to mute idols. Led astray to mute idols. Mute means unspeaking. They revealed nothing. And Paul says they were led astray to them. And the sense of this is that they were manipulated and coaxed and deceived and pushed into it. That's what they were. People who are capable of such gross error and deception in the past that their current judgment ought to be called into question. That's what he's arguing. He's saying, look, if you could have been so completely deceived in the past, and not that long ago either, you, you, you better sit down and start rethinking for a moment whether you can trust your own spiritual instincts and understanding about what spirituality is. Basically what he's arguing here is that not everyone who claims to be inspired is inspired. Not everybody claims to have a revelation from God ought to be trusted. He said, this was the way you behaved in the past. When you were involved in your mystery religions, your pagan religions, uh, you consulted oracles and you listened to the secrets and the mysteries of your religions and you all thought you were hearing uh, inspired words from God. You all thought that you had your own unique and distinct pipelines to God and were receiving a word straight from His mouth. And what you find here, after you come to Christ, after you hear the word, you found that you have been utterly deluded and deceived. He's saying, you need to realize this. Not everyone who claims, even in your own midst, that they have heard from God, has heard from God and is inspired. And secondly, he's saying, you don't need to be so quick to trust your own spiritual understanding. An important corrective point for us this morning, too. You shouldn't be so quick to trust your own sanctified common sense and spiritual instincts. Our consciences are to be shaped by the Word of God and the truth. Hopefully as we grow in sanctification and understanding of God's Word, uh, we grow in wisdom and, and, uh, in Christ. But, but what this is saying here is that we all ought to be careful 
not to assume that our own spiritual judgments are adequate. We need to constantly go back to the Word. You need to constantly go back to the Word and say, what did God say? It doesn't matter if you grew up in the Reformed Church all of your life and you think that because you've had the catechism taught to you since you were old enough to listen that somehow you know everything. Go back to the Bible. Go back to the Word of God. Keep keep running back to the foundation. Keep running back to the inspired words. Keep asking, keep pleading, keep praying over, keep interpreting, keep keep listening and learning. Our spiritual instincts by ourselves are not enough to be trusted to help us decide doctrinal truths or matters in the church. We have to constantly go back to the foundation, God's Word, and ask, what did God say? And this very important matter of spirituality, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, that you are not adequate to judge by yourself who the truly spiritual people are just by the way they're behaving. Just by the way they look when, when they're experiencing these Supposed outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Paul now thirdly comes to the very fundamental truth, uh, which is foundational to a right understanding of this entire passage, 12 through 14. Paul gives us finally the test, which is the foundation of true spirituality. What does somebody say? about Jesus. Look at verse 3. I hope your Bible is opening. You're still with me. He says, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now I don't think we need to assume that there are people standing up who are claiming inspiration probably who are saying Jesus is accursed. It just sort of sets up as a contrasting statement for what Paul really wants to get at. Which is this statement here, which is the acid test of Christianity and of spirituality. What do you say about Jesus? And here Paul says, here is the acid test of true spirituality. Do they say Jesus is Lord? You say Jesus is Lord. In other words, do you say that Jesus is God incarnate? Not a God incarnate, but do they say that Jesus is the God incarnate? That's the question. You know, that's, uh, that's an enormously important truth. And what Paul is saying here is that you can't say that unless the Holy Spirit has come into your life and regenerated you and enabled you to believe that. You know, it's no different really than what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. That by grace you are saved by faith. That not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. The only way that anybody is able to ever come to Jesus Christ and and to repent and to trust in Him by faith and to look in Him for, for salvation and hope and eternal life is if God by His grace comes into that person's heart and changes them. You know, you can hear all the right words all your life. You can parrot all the right answers. 
You can be all around the truth. You can have believing parents. You can have believing spouse. You can have believing friends. You can have all of this. You can have people just saying the right things around you. You can be sort of repeating these things. But the fact is, nobody ever really says this sincerely from the heart and rests their entire life upon it, saying there's no other way for me to be saved than by believing in Christ. And the only way people ever get to that point where they rest on Christ and trust in Him for their full salvation is by what? By an operation of God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 where uh, Jesus says virtually the same thing that Paul is saying here. Matthew chapter 16. And I want you to turn there for yourself uh, so you can see it for yourself. This is such a very, very important point that Jesus makes that Paul reiterates here and says is the foundation of what it means to be truly spiritual in the first place. Matthew 16, verse 17. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now we have to ask the question, why is Simon blessed? Why is Jesus saying to Simon, you're blessed? Well, in order to dig out the answer of that, you have to uh, look up to verse 13, where we're told that Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. And he was asking his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? In other words, Jesus is testing his disciples. He's asking them, uh, who, who is it? That people say, I am. Son of Man is just sort of a veiled reference to Christ as mediator, as Christ as Messiah. And Jesus is wanting to know from the disciples, uh, who do people think that I am? What do they think, these people who've, who've seen me? What do these people think who've heard my voice? What do these people think who have listened to the authority of my instruction? What do these people think who have felt my power go out of them and to heal them and to renew them and to, and to change their life? What do those people think? What do they say about me? Who do they say I am? And here is the response of the disciples. Some said, they think you're John the Baptist. Others think Elijah. And others think Jeremiah. You know what? If you could be called one of those things, all of us here this morning would think that God has blessed us in an extraordinary way. If somebody literally thought you are Elijah incarnate, that would be saying something. Or, or, or John the Baptist, or Jeremiah, these, these great old covenant prophets who by God were blessed to, to proclaim the word, to, to prophesy to heal, to do just outstanding wonders which are completely inconceivable to us, you would say, wow, they must really think I'm a dignified person. They must really think I'm extraordinarily spiritual. They must really have a regard for me. But, but Jesus goes on to ask the next question in verse 15. Who do you say I am? You see, what was common to all of those answers that they gave, uh, John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, at the end of the day, who are those people? 
Maybe extraordinary spiritual men who were used by God to do great things. But what are they? What is the common denominator? Not that they're prophets, but that they're men. Jesus is saying, who do people say I am? And now we get to why Simon Barjona is so blessed. Because he says this, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is asking him, he says, Peter, you've heard me, you've seen me, you've been a witness to the miracles. Who do you say that I am? You know that all these people over here think that I'm a good man, an extraordinary man, maybe one of the best of the prophets, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him in a matter of, in a moment of complete forthrightness and honesty and perception. He says to him, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Peter says, you are God in the flesh. And Jesus says, you're blessed. Why are you blessed, Peter? Why is it that Peter is so blessed based upon his catechism answer that all of you know? Well, here's why. Because Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that for a person to perceive who Christ is, as truly human, as truly divine, as God incarnate, requires an operation from heaven above. The Holy Spirit must reveal. The Holy Spirit must open the eyes. The Holy Spirit must tear open the heart. The Holy Spirit must regenerate. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can enable somebody to to sincerely say from the heart, I believe that Jesus is God. And I believe He is my Savior. And coming back to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Paul puts this whole discussion of spiritual gifts on its proper foundation. He says, you want to know what true spirituality is all about, Corinthians? True spirituality is this, that the Father in Heaven, through the Holy Spirit, has opened up the heart and the mind of a sinner and humbled them to the point that they acknowledge their sin, and they're fleeing to Jesus Christ, and they are resting and trusting in Him, the God-man, as their Savior. That's a spiritual person. That's the key right there, Corinthians. That's the person who you are to regard as a truly spiritual person. That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is with someone. Do they, do they really look to Jesus Christ? And do they really look to Him as the God-man? And do they sincerely confess Him with the heart and with the mouth and say, He's my Lord? And the question before us this morning, people of God, before we get into all of uh, the interesting details of extraordinary spiritual gifts is, is for you this morning. Do you say this? You know, you can't wait. You can't wait to answer that question. Because it really doesn't matter what you understand about word of wisdom or word of knowledge. Or you pick any of these gifts that are listed here. It, it, it just really doesn't matter at all. What, what matters 
is what do you say about Jesus? If you get that right, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you are a truly spiritual person who has been born again from above. And you are God's child. And you have eternal life. And if you have that this morning, you have every reason in the world to be full of hope and to rejoice. Because you say that, not because you are smarter, not because you are better, not because you are more perceptive. We can look at all those people that, that, that the disciples said, oh, they believe you're Jeremiah. They believe you're a good man. Do you know how many people in this world think Jesus is a good man? But don't trust him for salvation at all? You could walk down the hallowed halls of academia and find one after the other who say Jesus was a great guy. Is he God? No. That's stuff that the church made up. The most important truth that we can build upon is we work to understand what the extraordinary spiritual gifts were, is. What do you say about Jesus? He is Lord. And the truly spiritual person is spiritual only because the Holy Spirit has come upon them and enabled them to understand these great truths. Just to help you see where we're going next week, just a couple of things here quickly. Where are we going? We've laid the foundation. We've said this is what true spirituality is all about. And then we're going to tackle what Paul says now in detail. There are varieties of gifts. And what Paul is saying in that is there's a lot more than just tongues or prophecy, Corinthians, and yeah, you have to get over your privileging of those things. Two, to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit. To each one, he says, to every single one of you, and that's true of every Christian, to each one is given a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And we shouldn't look at one manifestation and say, it's above the other. No, what Paul is saying here is that we're all part of one body, and to each part is given a spiritual gift, and that is to be for the good of everybody. But everybody gets one. And we don't have the liberty to take up sides against each other in church. One boasting on this side, saying, I'm better because I have this. And one boasting on that side because they have this. And one boasting over there because they got this gift. And Paul is saying, no, to each one is given a gift. Thirdly, it's given for the common good. It's not for you. It's not so that you get uh, a gold-plated chair at church, which everybody looks at and says, that's the most honored seat in the church building. You get a gift so you can go serve somebody. You get a gift so you can go serve somebody. And you should think about that right now. You get a gift so you can go serve somebody. You get a gift. So, I hope you're hearing this. So you can do what? So you can go serve somebody. Not so you can serve yourself. That's not what the cross is about. And you get a gift. And this is crucial. You get the gift because... They are distributed to each one individually as the Holy Spirit wills. You get a gift because it was sovereignly given to you. You get a gift because it was sovereignly given to you. You didn't get it because you were more spiritual. 
because you are more self-righteous, because you are more intuitive, because you are more perceptive, because you are more eager, because you are more willing, because you are more zealous, because you hand out more tracts, you get a gift simply because God sovereignly gave it. That's what we're going to look at as we, Lord willing, open up the Word next week. May God richly bless this instruction to our hearts. And may we honestly and accurately understand His Word. Let's pray.